Capital Market Insights from ICMA. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third podcast in a series we are doing on market integrity and sustainable finance. I am Simone Utermark, Director in ICMA's Sustainable Finance Team. In the first two episodes, we already discussed greenwashing risks and remedies related to use of proceeds bonds, such as green bonds, sustainability-linked bonds, as well as transition finance. Today, we want to become even more concrete and talk about the link of sustainable finance and especially finance raised through sustainable bonds to the real world or real economy. For that, I am joined by Isabel Laurent, Deputy Treasurer and Head of Funding at the EBRD. Isabel is also chairing the Executive Committee of the Principals. Joseba Mota, Head of Fixed Income and ESG at Ibadrola. Ibadrola is also a member of the Executive Committee of the Principals. Eric Pedersen, Head of Responsible Investments at Nordia Asset Management. Jochen Grimpov, Global Lead Data, Tools and Methods for the Greening Financial Regulation Initiative, WWF. And last but not least, Julian Masakurati, Senior Economist, Risk Analysis and Economics Department at ESMA. Welcome, everyone. Now, let me dive right in and ask you, Eric, as an investor, are there genuine concerns with sustainable bonds, such as green bonds, not financing the real economy? And is it a problem that issuers are often raising money for refinancing? As for the first part of your question, uh, concerns, of course, you always have to be vigilant and make sure that what it is you, you think you're financing is actually what you're financing. And for the second part regarding uh, refinancing, I think uh, there's probably a slight preference towards new projects because there's the additionality aspect that investors are often looking for. But I wouldn't rule out uh, that refinancing always uh, also can have a place, especially in the longer term. And do you have any other concerns when you're looking at green bonds and issuers? I think one thing that uh, we have realized pretty early in the process in which we know uh, from conversations with other asset managers that they feel the same way is that when you're talking about use of proceed bonds, because the, the concept itself sort of implies that you shouldn't care about who the issuer is. You should look only at what are the proceeds going to, what is the purpose of, uh, of, of this particular bond, what are you financing? But in real life, uh, there are various reasons also to be interested in who is the issue and what's the level of confidence you have. Uh, first of all, that the things you've been promised are actually going to happen so that you're financing what you think you are, but also that you're not, uh, because of the fungibility of money, essentially, that you're not freeing up resources for other things that you might not want to be part of financing. I think that... Um... That was recognized um, several years ago in um, one of the editions of the Green Bond Principles because it was clear that the overarching strategy of the issuer, which creates the context in which the use of proceeds were there, was something that was going to be very important to work out whether or not uh, the use of proceeds were consistent or were they a way of advertising green credentials that simply didn't exist when you took the wider context into account. Mm. And I think a lot of the early scandals or signs that people were unhappy with um, the green credentials of a use of proceeds bond 
also reflected um, those with high emissions or fossil fuel entities. And um, as a result, the whole move by the Green Bond principles to look at um, climate transition finance and give greater advice, especially to those that really needed to see a trajectory as to how they can show that overall this use of proceeds were consistent with a trajectory of net zero or Paris alignment was extremely important. So I think that there have been many measures taken over the last several years by the Green Bond principles to try and help people understand the level of ambition that is required not just at a use of proceeds level, but in terms of the way that it fits into the overall strategy, and especially for high emitters, um, that's important to highlight. Julian, in the research for your paper, did you find that green bonds are having an impact on the real economy? What more is needed to establish whether green bonds are really delivering? So uh, to respond to this question, I think it's uh, it's useful to take a step back and, and take a little look at recent uh, green bond market developments. So there has been a tremendous market growth in, in recent years. I mean, that's nothing new, right? Um, but one of the um, you know less commented developments is that there's been a boom in, in corporate issuance to now in Europe, um, we estimated that corporate issuers were responsible for about 60% of all green bonds outstanding. Uh, it's a major development. It's probably great news uh, for the transition, but um, you know that means uh, it comes also with certain challenges. And so the fact that you have a, a broader set of issuer and some diversification uh, means that you have also a different understanding as to what uh, constitutes a green project or not, and also how you measure it, how you measure the impact, methodologies for measuring um, this impact, the metrics you use, and so on. And all this is compounded, of course, by um, a lack of granular climate-related data. That's a well-known fact. So when it comes to measuring the impact, that creates a bit of a, a challenge, uh, obviously. So what we tried to do was to take a look at, um, you know, one, commonly used metrics, which is uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And I think that's justified by the fact that in, in Europe, most of the projects somehow target climate change. But what we've realized, it's basically impossible to tell as of now, you know, what's the real economic impact of green bonds on the broader economy. There's either not sufficient information or the quality of the data is too low. Um, the information is inconsistent. And if you look at how many years the projects will take you know, for the impact to materialize, uh, we're, we're still very much at the beginning of the journey in that sense. So just to, to go back to the second part of your question, then what is needed, what will be needed in the future to assess whether green bonds are really delivering um, are common definitions. So what do we understand to be green, uh, improved data availability, and consistent metrics and transparent methodologies, especially when it comes to impact reporting. Joseba, let me come to you as an issuer or the, one of the two issuers in the round. What are some of the projects that Ibadrola is financing, also bearing in mind that you are in a sector that needs to transition? Ibadrola's growth is uh, focused on, on renewables and smart grids, two businesses that are crucial in the carbonization of the economy. And also energy security is something that is very relevant today to avoid external dependence. 
The Virtual started this uh, sustainable journey, as we call it, uh, more than 20 years ago. And right now we are leaders in renewable energy with uh, roughly 40 gigawatts of uh, installed capacity in different uh, regions of the world and different technologies. You'd say that the speed of growth of this business has increased the last years, of course, due to opportunities that we are having in, in regions uh, and due to the decarbonization targets also of those regions that are uh, speeding our opportunities. And it's uh, worth realizing that the access that we do have to, to debt capital markets is also the result of a, of a very robust uh, uh, green financing framework that I could say that is uh, highly appreciated by investors. Today, we are the, the world private group leader in, in green bonds issued with more than uh, 16 billion outstanding. I would say that we are very comfortable with the user proceeds approach because it warranties transparency in the impact and also accountability. That's uh, uh, very relevant uh, uh, in, in, this, uh, in this discussion. So, uh, and actually in this regard, we are publishing uh, a return report every year uh, where the sustainable impact of uh, its bond is detailed. And this is something that is very much appreciated by investors because they have the, the details at project levels like uh, capacity generation, uh, emissions avoided, and so on. If you are adding to all this also uh, street reporting and external verification, then I would say that we can state that you are warranting full uh, assurance and, and transparency. Also, Iberdrola as green financing framework, of course, is aligned with the uh, ICMA's green bond principles, and we demand that uh, all the projects to be financed must be aligned with the European Union taxonomy. So uh, in our opinion, this provides also a, a further step on transparency and, and ambition. Thank you. Yeah, I think that uh, exemplifies the link to the real economy, the move to renewables or the, the financing of renewables. And uh, Jochen Joseba just mentioned uh, the framework is, of course, linked to the green bond principles, but also um, in order to uh, define the greenness more, they're using the EU taxonomy. Do taxonomies such as the EU taxonomy help to prevent greenwashing in your view? The short answer is yes and no. It depends. Perhaps, first of all, um, taxonomies are sustainable investment frameworks, mostly led by governments that aim to create transparency about what type of finance and investment is environmentally sustainable. In short, that's, that's governments saying what they perceive as helpful to reach their environmental policy goals and what they perceive as rather harmful and detrimental to save the planet. So. So these taxonomies are sort of a dictionary of what is green and what is not. Um, you can think of it as a Webster's Dictionary to to Sustainable Finance or the Hitchhiker's Guide to Green Investments or something like this. But um, the EU and, and to some extent China have been um, at the forefront of those developments and they've pioneered this um, concept of taxonomies. There are now many of those taxonomies around and we've identified 29 of them. So. So we probably urgently need governments to figure out how to drive convergence of these um, taxonomies if we don't want to end up with more confusion rather than clarity on a common language. Um, to cut a long story short, um, yes, of course, um, the EU taxonomy can help um, prevent greenwashing in Europe from having an official EU-wide science-based government-sponsored set of definitions of what is helpful for the planet, what's harmful uh, is, of course, very useful to enhance market integrity and prevent greenwashing. Um, uh, in fact, I think the European taxonomy was even explicitly designed with that purpose in mind by the European lawmakers. Um, but 
when when real life interferes, uh, things become a little bit more complicated. And as uh, most of you have probably seen in the press, there was a huge controversy about political pressures and some weird sources of energy uh, for power production, such as nuclear and power labeled as green. Um, so ultimately, in, in, in the eye of many, um, this type of controversy can create confusion and can even increase the risk of greenwashing. So it's no at the same time. I would even go further and say that those chapters of the EU taxonomy can be misused as greenwashing machines. Uh, because they just don't live up to the expectation uh, that was created that taxonomy should be science-based um, and enhance market integrity. Um, in the short term, we probably have to accept that the market will not live with um, one single um, one-size-fits-all approach to taxonomies. We'll have a little bit of confusion, which I refer to as a, a Babel Tower challenge. Um, Hopefully um, that will be limited um, uh, uh, because it, as I said, opens up the door to greenwashing. Isabel, do you have a thought on this as well? <laughs> yes, I was slightly amused by Johan talking about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy kind of version. You know, as one remembers that uh, a computer spat out the number 42 as the um, answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe and everything. And I do sometimes fear um, that there's something similar in terms of the idea of the EU taxonomy, that it will give the answer um, to what is green or green enough. And um, I think that um, the particular concern that I have is that the rhetoric is often the whole point of the EU taxonomy is in order to tell you what is green or green enough. And these are the things that are and to prevent greenwashing. So there's a sort of implication that things that don't meet it are greenwashing. Now, a lot of the things that are in the taxonomy, quite apart from the question of nuclear and gas, which um, Johan has just raised as well, that they have sometimes a measuring things that if your project, especially projects outside the EU are doing, this simply isn't the data for. So, for instance, if we're talking about buildings and you're talking about needing to show that your um, new green building is 10% more efficient than a net zero energy building, if you're in any part of the world, which is quite a large part of it, that doesn't even have a standard for net zero energy buildings, you're already not able to show this. And um, then there's other questions that they have about what they measure. So um, when we look at the impact reporting um, working groups uh, efforts to, for every project category, produce what are metrics that could be used in any geography and then what baselines and benchmarks they may look to refer to. I think it's very helpful because, um, for instance, in green buildings, they're talking about platinum lead and bream and edge and some of the really um, robust standards that exist. And that is often easier and it measures quite a lot of different things, not just um, energy efficiency. Um, yet when you come to the water measure for that, which is especially important in 
countries with drought and other things, you know, the um, care that they focus on is on looking at water savings and um, may include things like potable water used or rainwater harvested and reused and other measures that are focused about enhanced groundwater recharge capacity. These can be super meaningful, but in the EU taxonomy, in the do no significant harm, they're in fact focused on the speed of water coming out of the taps and the flush. I mean, these are really quite minor in comparison with those more important things. And they don't really, um, therefore, uh, suggest that there are more ambitious standards than the standards that may be used by much of the market in determining whether it's green. I think the other thing to recognise is the EU is very EU centric in terms of the taxonomy. I mean, inevitably. Um, but what they focus on quite often is something that isn't even the objective of a um, a particular type of uh, project. So if I take transportation and sustainable transportation, I mean, the market recognises a sustainable transport hierarchy and that one of the most important things is to look at the efficiency of the transport system and trying to um, avoid or replace or reduce the need for um, all the more polluting forms of transport. But when you look at the EU taxonomy, for, for instance, in railways or something like that, it's really not focused on that. It's focused on the interoperability of the railway system within the EU. So clearly, this is just a very different mindset and focus from many of the sort of transportation projects that we would see elsewhere. So there's data lacking, the focus is too EU centric, and it may not even be looking at the most critical things in particular geographies in terms of assessing robustness of projects. So it isn't the number 42 um, in all its glory, or rather it is, but in, at one level, um, exactly a hitchhiker type uh, problem. Thank you. And indeed, we don't just have the EU taxonomy, which is also not fully complete yet. We also have taxonomies sprouting up in, in other uh, jurisdictions globally. And I guess all of them mention the, the challenges that you just mentioned when it comes to usability and uh, to be really practical in the real world. Eric, let me come back to you uh, as an investor. Isabel already mentioned the principles and uh, the guidance that we have for reporting one of the core components indeed of the principles is impact reporting, also allocation reporting, but investors uh, increasingly seem to be focusing on impact reporting. In your experience, are issuers genuinely reporting on impact? Do you find it is standardized and comparable? Not yet, but I think we're, we're seeing uh, steps in that direction. So you'd always want more and you always want to dig deeper, I think, when, if, if you have the time for it. But clearly we want to see what's happening and what is the outcome. And the better and the more standardized the way. And again, when, when you say standardized, projects are different and, and they deal with different things and, and the impacts that they're trying to achieve or, or, or promising to achieve are different ones. So. I find that, uh, and maybe I'm making myself a little unpopular here with uh, very data-driven uh, sort of uh, approaches, but 
Uh, I, I think there's room for a bit of narrative that relates to the individual project. Um, because you need to understand what's really going on there. And, you know, very few are the same. I think what Iberdrola is putting on the market there is, is that's among the easier ones. So they're easy to love because you know what it is and, and you know what you're getting. And, uh, you know, it's a reputable issue, uh, even relying on the taxonomy as well to underpin uh, their claims and so on. So, so that's not difficult, but there will be a lot of others where, where you simply need the narrative. And I don't think you can standardize completely the uh, sort of data requirements that you're going to have. Yeah, interesting. And uh, Isabel, ICMA has two handbooks for impact reporting, one on the social side and one on the green side. You were one of the coordinators uh, for many years now because it's a, it's a constant uh, development. Do you find this is a good tool to combat accusations of greenwashing by demonstrating the real world impact of projects also as an issuer? Yes, I think that... We are hearing and seeing, and in fact, this year's exercise now that we've got um, metrics for every project category, um, the the uh, thing that we're working on is checking, are people using those metrics? Are they using something else and what we need to look at? And as Eric just said, we also highlight the fact that it's not enough just to look at metrics, but also to provide context because the context of a project um, may tell you whether it really is sustainable um, and or whether there are negative harms that have not been mitigated. So um, it's uh, interesting trying to think about, um, and we try and highlight in each chapter, what are the issues that are connected with each kind of project category that would tell you whether there are sustainability issues um, that undermine a particular project and that those should be reported on and how to think about the project as well as providing metrics. I think the best thing about uh, providing metrics is that the more people that are using them, um, the more that we're able for um, investors to see them able to aggregate, to compare, but you can't just aggregate um, uh, similar numbers if you don't understand the context in which they're happening, because that's where you may find that there are things that would either undermine it or um, if you can't see the methodology. And again, the um, handbook for the Harmonized Framework for Impact Reporting goes into details of, of that too. What do you mean by context? So the context of um, if you've got agribusiness, sustainable agriculture projects, thinking about our most recent category, if some of those projects are being done in a way that displaces people, then that is clearly problematic. So it's um, it may be that the context of where something is happening is going to be important to an assessment of whether or not it is producing um, the right results. So it might undermine those results. There are ways of thinking, for instance, about adaptation, where you have to first work out what the risks are and whether or not there are these particular harms and risks before you can say this is an adaptation project. If we're thinking about water projects and whether or not 
um, the water project is going to reduce access for people because you can have water reductions where you're not allowing uh, clean water to become accessible to a wider portion. So there may be other types of data that need to be um, also disclosed in order for a better understanding of the project. I should have dug out the the book so that it would become easier to understand what the issues are. But in each chapter, we do try and highlight some of the key concerns. Joseba, you already briefly mentioned uh, when we talked about the projects that you're financing that you're also getting a, a review. Um, the issuance of sustainable bonds is typically accompanied by second party opinions or SPOs that I think you mentioned. Uh, mostly they're being obtained pre-issuance. Do you find that having an SPO or other external reviews in general help enhance the market integrity of a bond or an issuer? Yeah, I believe SPO providers have played a relevant role during many years. Back in 2014, when we issued our first green bond, the, the green financing market was not mature. Uh, and some companies like us wanted to, to, to follow the highest standards. And more importantly, to, to, to avoid any kind of reputational impact, you know? And, and I believe that in this context, uh, those SPO providers, uh, together with the external verification as well, were very helpful and helped, especially investors, to get the, the visibility of the assets and, and how the, uh, the strategies of the companies were aligned to that financing as well, you know? So uh, in our experience, uh, that these uh, SPO providers have uh, always served uh, the best practices, and even sometimes uh, they have even encouraged the ambition of, of some corporates at some points. Uh, uh, so I could say that they have contributed to the expansion of the market as well. I can agree that uh, probably the, the natural evolution could be to regulate these services now. Probably the way credit ratings were regulated uh, long ago. And by the way, uh, this is actually part of the, the future of the European Union Green Border Standard that will uh, reinforce the process. Eric, do you as an investor find it helpful to read uh, external reviews such as second party opinions? Yes. I mean, it saves us some extra work. And I think without them, uh, we, we'd be pretty much lost because we have to do all the digging ourselves. So I think those are definitely helpful. And I wanted to ask uh, Julian, as uh, representing ESMA, of course, on this call about this. I think um, SPO providers are um, very much part of the answer. They're probably not the universal solution to all of our problems. The model does help to provide uh, with some reassurances uh, in terms of the credibility of the issuers. And that's very helpful from an investor point of view. And there is actually some evidence that investors are actually already paying attention to the existence or not of an external review or um, a second party opinion uh, because third party reviewed green bonds tend to attract lower yields in other words they have a, a higher greenium which shows that investors you know do look at these spos and that helps also issuers um, hopefully offset some of the costs that are associated with these external reviews now uh, there's some questions that are legitimately being raised um, about um, you know the reputation and the the activities of, of these spo provider or external reviewers so in terms of strengthening market integrity the question is how do we reinforce the credibility and reliability uh, of the pro SPO providers and their assessments. And that's where uh, the proposed green bond regulation um, comes in. 
So under the proposed regulation, ESMA will be in charge of supervising these external reviewers. So that's termed in a broad term that's inclusive of, of SPO providers. You know, just to be clear, the European Green Bond is a voluntary label, but if an issuer decides to go for that label, then the requirements become mandatory. In other words, if a company wants to issue an EU Green Bond, it will have to use an ESMA supervised external reviewer. Now, the obligations that will be imposed on these reviewers, like um, you know, organizational requirements, processes, methodologies, conflicts of interest, and so on, the objective of these requirements is precisely to um, strengthen the credibility of the providers and their assessments. In addition to uh, introducing transparency requirements on these SPO providers, um, like the mandatory publication of pre and post issuance reviews, impact reporting, and so on, which will empower investors to make their own decision and guide their investment decisions, because in the end, they're best placed to decide whether they like or not what they see. So the, the overall level of credibility and transparency in the market will also depend to what extent there is um, a take up of the new GBS standard. Um, so we'll see how that evolves. Before we conclude the podcast, let me come to uh, a topic that I think uh, has the biggest link maybe, or the most obvious link rather to the real world and the real economy, and that's uh, technology. Investors are increasingly looking to technology to help their understanding of whether an impact in the real world is achieved. Um, I'm talking, of course, about uh, AI platforms, uh, geospatial data and, uh, and similar um, tools which provide independent data in addition to company disclosure. Now, Jochen, I know WWF was involved in a report on geospatial data. I don't know if you're looking at other um, tools as well. Um, could you perhaps briefly give us an insight into the future or maybe also what's going on already in that space? Of course, of course. Um, so first of all, uh, I think company disclosures and reporting is very important, be it mandatory or voluntary. So um, we shouldn't underestimate that. Um, but that, that reporting needs to be verified and there's a whole um, space where I think making it consistent and publicly available is important. But um, when it comes to data which is not company provided, um, I think there's a good and, and fast moving trend by financial institutions to look for other sources of information, including remote sensing and, and satellite data. The tragedy perhaps of our generation and the scary thing is that um, the fact that industrial activity uh, and or human activity overall in general is really transforming our planet so massively that you can actually see it from the space. That's why WWF, for example, has created a platform called um, WWF Site, which uses a broad range of data layers, so including, of course, satellite imagery remote sensing to monitor how and where the planet is changing and and hopefully trying to identify who and what is responsible for that land use change, deforestation, illegal logging, uh, illegal mining. There are many activities, uh, industrial or human activities that you can actually see from space that you can track. You can connect those databases to um, proprietary um, databases of corporate ownership so basically find out who is responsible and should be accountable for those impacts. Um, you can track droughts, you can look at the effects of those droughts on water reservoirs. Um, you, you can even now track and monitor species populations from space. Quite amazing. And check out WWF's 
cooperation with Google Earth, if you were interested. And now, satellite data can also help identify the biggest polluters if and when mandatory company disclosures have loopholes um, in jurisdictions where they're basically not robust enough. Um, in that way, you can basically keep companies in check when they're cheating on their pollution records, for example, as well. Um, one example, uh, NGOs have set up a platform called Climate Trace, which um, is an interactive map where you can sort of track and look at the biggest source of, of pollutions worldwide using satellite data sensors and, and some machine learning because making sensors of these data points is important. So hopefully in the near future, um, you will be men see many other things. The more, I mean, we, we enter in the big data century, the more um, machines get smarter than humans to some extent. Um, hopefully you'll see um, much more in this space from NGOs such as WWF, or others, uh, but also financial institutions that look at ESG data. So I think that's really um, a fast moving and a very exciting space. It truly is. I find that fascinating as well that ICMA, um, the sustainable finance team, quite often speaks to our fintech colleagues when there are any tools uh, in relation to the sustainable bonds market. Now with that, we'll have to conclude today's podcast. Thank you very much again to Isabel, Joseba, Eric, Jochen and Julian. And of course, to you out there for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening. For more ICMA podcasts and further information on capital markets, please visit our website, icmagroup.org.